Uh, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke first, Luke chapter 18, once again, verses 31 through 34. In just a moment, I'll ask you to turn back to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. I want to look at both of these passages today. Our topic today is servanthood, the servanthood of our Savior Jesus Christ, and the, the servanthood that we are called to as we follow after him. I want to look at Uh, at this extraordinary story in Mark that follows after what Jesus says here in Luke. It's an extraordinarily embarrassing story when you think about it, where where James and John come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. We, We want you to put us in a place of honor, a place of prominence, a place where we'll be noticed. And that is in striking contrast to the the humble, self-giving service that Jesus has just spoken to about regarding himself as he is headed to Jerusalem to lay down his life. And it's within that context Jesus uses this incident to teach us something about discipleship, the shape of discipleship and the mark of disciples, which is servanthood. Uh, In in the Luke passage, which we'll read in just a moment, we are reminded not for the first time of Jesus' destiny, which is to go to Jerusalem to die. Jesus was born into the world to lay down his life, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. And Luke's underlying concern throughout the gospel is to trace for us, I think, the resolve, the the relentless resolve of Jesus to his commission given to him by his heavenly father to be the servant of the Lord who lays down his life for our salvation. Well, before we read these two passages, let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us this morning. Father, we thank you for meeting with us today, for hearing our prayers and our praises And for now speaking to us in and through your word. And let us, each one of us, be quick to hear this morning, slow to speak, slow to anger. For we know that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So help us to put away all immorality and evil and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 18, beginning in verse 31, let's hear God's word. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and, and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. I'm flip back to, to Mark chapter 10 here, and we'll read verses 35 through 45. Mark 10, beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to, and said to him, Teacher, 
We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, if you were asked the question, how does the Bible help us to live lives which glorify God? What would your answer be? How does the Bible help us to live lives which glorify God? You might say, well, that's that's an easy one to answer. The Bible gives us... Uh, instruction about what God loves and what God hates. The Bible gives us commands, what we are to do, and and, uh, also tells us a, a list of lifestyles that are to be avoided. But actually, if you'll allow me to say that, if I were to grade it, I'd give that a C for the answer. It's not an A answer. It's a C answer. Because the primary way the Bible teaches us to glorify God is by setting before us our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, is what gives power to Christian living. Without Christ, without the cross, without an empty tomb, we would be left with a list of do's and don'ts. But the Bible never reduces Christian living or Christian ethics to a list of do's and don'ts. And we will see that in these passages this morning. We will see how Jesus, I hope, presses upon his disciples the the life that is glorifying to God. And all I want to do this morning is simply walk through these passages and see how it progresses to Jesus teaching his disciples a lesson about service in the kingdom of God and how he teaches that lesson to them. So there are four parts of these passages that I want us to look at this morning. And the first thing I want us to think about is the relentless resolve of Jesus that we see in Luke 18. In verse 31 of Luke 18, we We read that taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And he knew why they were going to Jerusalem. Earlier we were told in Luke that Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Jesus 
came into the world to die. He came to lay down his life for the world, sent by his father to be the sin bearer of the world, to be an atoning sacrifice that would take away and deal with our sin against God. And he knows what lies before him. You see that in the the verses following, speaking of himself, Jesus said, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging, they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. Jesus knows what lies before him. He doesn't doesn't yet know the extent of the suffering that awaits him. He, He knows in principle That he is to be the sin bearer of God's people. But he does not yet know personally and experientially all that it will mean for him to be the, the sin bearer of God's people. Upon whom are laid the transgressions of God's people as he carries them to the cross. But you see there is this relentless resolve in Jesus to the mission entrusted to him by his father. He has come into the world to die. He has not come to hide from the cost of being the savior of sinners. He has come to embrace that cost in its fullness. Then in John's gospel, there's this remarkable moment in Jesus' life. Maybe you remember this when he prays, Father, the hour has come and what shall I say? Rescue me from this hour. No, For this hour, I was born into the world. So there is a relentless resolve at the very heart of Jesus' life. You know, I think if somebody could have come up to Jesus as he made his way relentlessly to Jerusalem, someone could have asked Jesus, okay, you know what lies before you. Then why are you marching relentlessly towards that holocaust of suffering in Jerusalem? And I think Jesus would have simply said in response that I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come to lay down my life for sinners. That's Jesus' relentless resolve. But now with that in our minds, secondly, I want us to see the disciples' astonishing insensitivity. You know, Luke tells us that They understood none of these things. Although all that Jesus said was grounded in the Old Testament prophets. And what he was going to do in Jerusalem would be in fulfillment to the scriptures. They didn't get it. They didn't grasp what Jesus was saying. And Mark, I think, wants us to understand the request of James and John in relation to Jesus' relentless resolve as a servant to go to Jerusalem and lay down his life. And so James and John come to Jesus and they say after this, okay, Jesus, we want to ask you for something. We'd, we'd like you to do something for us. Do us a favor. And Jesus said, okay, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? We want to sit at your right and your left hand. We want places of prominence. We, we want to be Put in places where we'll be noticed, where we'll be exalted above others. You see, Jesus' human soul is being engulfed by the prospect of being the suffering servant. And the disciples are saying, Jesus, would you please grant us places of preeminence in your messianic glory? 
We want to be above the others. We want to be in the place of honor. We want to be noticed. John Calvin has this great statement about this verse. He says that in the disciples' request, we see as in a clear mirror the heart of human vanity. Uh, They're concerned for themselves. They're concerned about being noticed. Instead of walking humbly with the Lord Jesus during this period of increasing suffering that will culminate in Gethsemane and the horror of the cross, instead of supporting Jesus and praying for Jesus and encouraging Jesus along the way, they're just they're, they're too wrapped up with themselves. They're taken up with their own interests and concerns. And friends, I'm sure, I'm sure as we think about that, that that must resonate with us here because... At the very heart of sin is to have the self exalted, self-promoted, self-noticed, self in a place of prominence, honored. It's actually, if you think about it, the sin of Satan, isn't it? What did Satan want? He wanted to be exalted above God. It's the sin of pride, a refusal to acknowledge others as better and more important than yourself. The desire to have first place, the top place, the place of recognition. See, we, we want, as, as sinners, we want to be in places where we're noticed. We want to be recognized. And the question is, Jesus, can you do that for us? Can you do us this favor? And the insensitivity of the request and in light of Jesus' own humble service, is, it's beyond words, isn't it, when you think about it? The weight of the Savior's mission is pressing down upon his human soul, and he's being confronted by the crass insensitivity of his own disciples. And we're told later in Mark, in verse 41, when the ten heard it, uh, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were angry with James and John. Well, why were they angry with them? We might, we might want to say that they were angry because of the insensitivity of the request. James and John, did you not just hear what Jesus said? He's going to Jerusalem to, to suffer and to be tortured, to be unjustly treated and then die. Do you not realize how insensitive you are being to, to the Lord Jesus? But, but actually... They were indignant, and this is made clear when you read all of the gospel accounts. They were indignant because James and John got the request in first. Luke will tell us later that a dispute arose among the disciples about which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The disciples were indignant because they thought they deserved the place of preeminence. It's not, it's not the crass insensitivity of the request that bothered them, them. it was that they didn't get the request in first. And so because Jesus is going to talk with them in a a moment about servanthood and service in the kingdom of God, right now I think as we look at James and John's request, we can can at least say what servanthood is not. (laughs) It is not what James and John are doing. Asking for honor, asking for prominence, concerned with self. Their their request reveals their mixed up hearts. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask you. 
They assume that Jesus is there to satisfy their ambitions, to meet their goals. And that, my friends, is precisely what servanthood is not. It is not seeing others as a means to satisfying your own desires. It is not treating others as a means for personal gain. But then thirdly here, as we keep moving, notice how, notice how Jesus responds to the insensitivity of the disciples. He responds so gently to them. Remember again that the sheer momentous weight of Jesus' mission is beginning to overwhelm him. And we're going, to, we're going to feel the weight of that, I think, as we continue to move on in the Gospel of Luke. The shadow of the cross is beginning to penetrate his human soul. The prospect of becoming the sin-bearing sacrifice and enduring in his own body the wrath and curse of Almighty God against our sin. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they say, we're able. Now you understand, Jesus' question is meant to evoke the response, no, Lord Jesus, we are not able. We are not able to drink the cup that you are drinking. We are not able to be baptized with the baptism with which you are to be baptized. But instead they say to Jesus, yeah, we can, we can do that. They're like so many Christians. They're like, they're like me. They think they know more than they really do. They, they, they're self-confident. And so they say, drink the cup that you drink, no problem. Be baptized with the baptism with which you are to be baptized, got it, no problem at all. But the cup, the cup for Jesus, the cup that Jesus was to drink is the holy judgment of God on our sin. It's an Old Testament symbol of God's righteous judgment. And Jesus was to drink it to the dregs. And the baptism with which Jesus was to be baptized, well, you know, when we, when we speak about baptism uh, we, we usually tend to focus on the positive side of baptism. You know, when we see someone baptized in, in church, we focus upon the, the wonderful promises that are signified through our, our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the blessings that God gives to his people and his son, and, and rightly so. But we need to understand that when it comes to covenant signs, which baptism is a sign of the covenant, that there is always a, a negative side to covenant signs. And that's why when, you know, when Peter speaks about baptism, he, he speaks of the floodwaters of Noah's day, the waters that judge, that, that drowned every living human being except for Noah and his family who were kept safe in the ark. When... Uh, when Paul is speaking of baptism, he speaks of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and the waters of judgment then coming down upon Pharaoh and the armies. They were baptized in a baptism of judgment. So Jesus, I think, is, he's saying, I have a baptism with which to be baptized. And his death on the cross 
was a baptism of judgment on our sin, where he stepped into the place of condemnation. And so Jesus is saying, James and John, can, can you take that cup that is your own sin and guilt and bear that cup? You know, he'll, he'll go on to say in, in Mark 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. Jesus is, I think, alluding there to uh, that great servant song that we're so familiar with in Isaiah 53, verse 10, where the servant of the Lord makes an offering to secure the release of someone who is in debt. Jesus came to pay that debt, and he paid it in full by drinking the cup and by being baptized in judgment upon the cross. And no one could pay that debt but Christ alone. Now, if that's right, then what Jesus goes on to say is maybe surprising. Because <coughs> Jesus goes on to say to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am to be baptized with, you will be baptized. So, okay, okay, Jared, if what you just said is right, then what, what, is this, what does this mean? What is Jesus saying? Well, here's what I think Jesus meant. Because the cup in the Old Testament, you'll find it throughout the Psalms, the cup also, it symbolizes suffering. The psalmists speak of the cup of suffering. Only, again, only Jesus can drink the cup of God's righteous wrath against human sin. But I think he's saying to his disciples, dear ones, in a sense, you will drink of my cup because you will experience what it will mean to belong to me. You will be so identified with me in my death, in my humiliation, that you will share in my sufferings. You will bear in your own bodies the cost of belonging to me, and you will drink that cup. And the baptism with which I am to be baptized, again, Jesus is thinking of being overwhelmed on Calvary's cross by the righteous judgment of God on sin. And he's picturing death as an overwhelming baptism of judgment. And he's saying to the disciples, yes, you will, you will also share in that baptism. You will be so identified with me that this world will set its face against you as it has set its face against me. Now that's a, that's a message we don't hear being emphasized today, isn't it? Here, here's the realism. Here's the honesty of Jesus as he's speaking to his disciples. In this life, he promises suffering. You know, if we, maybe somebody will, comes up to us and says, you know, I want to I follow Jesus. That's, that's wonderful. Maybe one of the things we ought to say to them is that that is great. And I'm so glad to hear it. So take up your cross and come and die. <laughs> die? Well, yeah, that's what Jesus says, isn't it? To take up your cross, the cross of suffering, the cross of humiliation and follow after me and anyone who will not take up his cross and follow me what does Jesus say cannot be my disciple and so Jesus seeks to teach these disciples something they desperately needed to learn about discipleship the proper place of honor and exaltation and the proper place of humble service and so verse 42 he 
He goes on to say, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Okay, so you've got Gentiles in places of prominence, places of authority. And how are they using that, that, that position? They are using their authority by lording it over others. And Jesus says, it will not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. <laughs> Jesus turns the values of this world upside down. And you look, you're looking for greatness, James and John? Then lay down your life in service to others. Give of yourself. Don't seek recognition. Don't look for notice. Serve. Because in the kingdom of God, greatness depends not upon status, but on service. The great ones, Jesus is saying, are those who serve. So do you want to measure greatness in the kingdom of God? Then you measure it insofar as someone is willing to get down on their knees and serve. That's what true greatness is in the kingdom of God. And in this season of the life of our church, you know, we're thinking a lot about deacons and mercy ministry. And Lord willing, later this year, we'll see men installed to, to serve as deacons here at Trinity Presbyterian Church. And isn't it, isn't it, well, really tremendously helpful that Christ in his wisdom has established this perpetual office in his church where men are called to be living, walking examples of what a servant life looks like. And Jesus Christ himself, this passage is telling us, is the servant king. He turns the values of this fallen world upside down. Better yet, better yet, he comes to recover and restore to this world the values that were there at the very beginning of creation. Because this is what God's grace does. It recovers, refines, and restores us to what God created us and is recreating us to be. And so Jesus says, the great ones are the ones who serve. And that's true, you know, in, in every area of life. As disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ living under his kingdom rule, you understand that the kingdom rule of Jesus doesn't just extend to our church life. It extends to every aspect of our lives. And so what Jesus is saying here applies just as much to family life. So if I can speak just for a moment to husbands and challenge myself as well. You know, you've met the husband who thinks that his wife and children basically exist to wait upon him hand and foot. Jesus is saying that's upside down and actually contrary to kingdom life. The godly head of a home is a husband with a servant heart. A husband who lays down his life for his wife and expends himself for the good of his wife and children. See, they, they are there to lead their families by serving their families. Because that's what leadership is. It's service to others for their good. So dear brothers, we are not prepared to talk about leadership in the home until we are prepared to talk about laying down our lives in service to our wives 
and for the good of our children. It's also true for church life. We mentioned this in Sunday school, how all of us are called to serve one another by, by humbling ourselves and counting one another better than ourselves, by giving ourselves up for the good of the body. So rivalry, conceit, jealousy, competition, self-centeredness, self-seeking, self-service, these all compromise the Jesus-like service that we are called to render to one another. And then finally, the fourth thing I want us to see here is I want us to notice how Jesus uses his own personal example to drive home this call to serve. Go back to the question I asked a moment ago at at the start. How does the Bible help us to live lives that glorify God? Here's the answer, and here's an example of it. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what Jesus is doing? He's talking to his disciples, committed followers. He's not saying, This is how you become my disciple. You become his disciple by turning from sin, by repenting and trusting in him. And as you live a life of repentance and faith, Jesus calls you to follow in his footsteps, including in his footsteps of self-giving service. And so Jesus tells his disciples that greatness lies not in status, but in service. And he says, here is the great illustration of that. For even the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man. Who's the Son? The Son of Man in the Old Testament is a figure who is given authority and power and dominion and glory. Even the Son of Man who has been given these things by the Ancient of Days did not come into this world to be served, but to serve. And how did he serve? By giving his life as a ransom for many. See, my friends, the problem with our lives is that we are often too blind to all of the ways that sin distorts us. We are, as Luther used to say, in curvatus, turned in on ourselves. And at the heart of sin is a self-centered life, an independently self-centered life. And Jesus, Jesus came as the greatest somebody whoever was and became the greatest nobody who ever lived. And he's saying that is greatness. He laid down his life for us. He sought not his own, but the good of others. He abandoned himself in order to ransom and rescue us. He bore his own body, as Peter says, our judgment on the cross, the condemnation, the shame, and the judgment that Our sin deserved. And he did it. Here's the the key to understanding true service in the kingdom of God. He did it because love loves to serve. I started premarital counseling with a couple yesterday. So this is kind of on my mind. So I'll, I'll go ahead and say this to all the young ladies in our church. If any of you find a man taking an interest in you, please... Please, 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 please ask yourself this question very early on. Does he give me the impression, even early on now in our friendship, does he give me the impression 
that he is a humble servant. That he would lay down his life for my everlasting good. Will he serve whatever the cost to himself? Because, ladies, God wants you to marry a servant-hearted man, not a self-serving man. So you see, you see where the Bible generates a desire, though, for a life pleasing to God. It is not by focusing our attention predominantly on the do's and don'ts of the Christian life, as important as the do's and don'ts are for living the Christian life. Instead, Scripture, page after page, chapter after chapter, is intent on focusing our attention on the person of Jesus Christ, the servant king, the greatest somebody who ever was, who became the greatest nobody who ever lived. And he did it out of love, all for love's sake. He laid down his life. So when you look at the gospels from beginning to end, and you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you can be asking this question, why is is the incarnate son of God laying in a manger? Why is he wandering around Galilee with no place to lay his head? Why is he going around doing good, preaching the good news to the point of utter physical exhaustion? Why is he marching to Jerusalem to guaranteed suffering where he will be beaten and bruised and falsely accused? And why is he hanging on that cursed tree? And the answer of the gospel, dear friends, is because love loves to serve. And Jesus Christ loved us to the very end. And Jesus Christ, here's what we need to understand today, is our example as well as our Savior. And the gospel comes not just to bring us the forgiveness of our sins, but to plant our lives in Jesus Christ so that we become conformed more and more to his moral likeness. And a heart that is being transformed and conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ is a heart that serves. It doesn't look for prominence or recognition or notice or honor. It is a heart that quietly, humbly serves for the good of others. That, Jesus says, is true greatness. So may the the Lord make us like his son A people who live not to be served, but to serve. That Jesus might receive all of the glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder today that we owe Jesus absolutely everything. And Lord Jesus, we confess together that we love you, but we also confess that we have yet to love you as you ought to be loved. So work in our lives that we might love you more and follow you more closely and be conformed to you in this very way that we would grow in humble service to the saints. And uh, Lord, we pray that it would resound to your glory and honor. Amen.